0: maybe think about verse 47 the Lord's conclusion of what he's saying to Simon the Pharisee he says then verse 47 therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little this account is um because of similar details. It's sometimes thought to be referring to the anointing of Jesus in Bethany um, shortly before his going to, to the cross, the anointing, remember, by Mary with a view to our Lord's burial, where Judas and the disciples were so frustrated and angry about what they called the waste. There are similarities, but there are also differences, so it's not the same thing But as well, sometimes this account, because of how the Lord speaks, there in in verse 50, well, verse 48 and 50, where he says to the woman, your sins are forgiven and your faith has saved you. It sometimes seems that this is an account of someone coming to meet the Lord for the first time, so someone's conversion and someone's um, receiving forgiveness. But verse 47 that we've just read, reread, it seems, I think, to say something different. And that this woman is showing Jesus such amazing love and worship. Not with a view to receiving forgiveness, but because she has already received forgiveness. This, I think, is a woman who just can't get over the fact that she loves Jesus so much. And the reason would seem to be because she knows she's been forgiven so much. And Simon, the religious Pharisee, the man who doesn't understand grace at all, he seems to be someone who is um, looking at himself as being sinless and this woman as being sinful. And there's such a contrast, really, between uh, the centurion, the beginning of the chapter, and this man, Simon the Pharisee. Because Simon, the Pharisee here, being a Pharisee, being a religious man, being by definition one who thought he was separate and different from everyone else. He thought it was a cut above the rest, and he was good and godly. Remember the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, that amazing parable Jesus teaches, and the attitude of the Pharisee who was so full of praise for himself and everything he had done, and he's effectively standing and thanking God that he's such an— well, not God is, but that he himself, the Pharisee, is such an amazing person— and the opposite is seen with the tax collector who uh, beats his breast and wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The centurion is so different, isn't he? I don't know if you read a word or came across a word. Notice it maybe last night or just now. It's where he says to Jesus, in verse, or the word is sent to him rather, for, from, to Jesus in verse 6, Jesus went with me. and he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Here it is, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. There's something different about this man, isn't there? Something of a, a true and a profound and a deep awareness of who Jesus is. Maybe not a fool, but a, but a, but a real awareness nonetheless. That he doesn't feel himself, though he's a centurion and though by his own admission he, he, he's a man with authority telling soldiers to, to go and they go, to come and they come and to do this and they do it. So he's someone who's influential in society, someone who's important. But he's learned enough about himself through, it would seem, learning enough about Jesus to know that he is not unworthy to host this amazing person in his house. What about Simon, the Pharisee? He thinks that Jesus, or that he rather deserves someone like Jesus to come to his house, and he treats our Lord with such disrespect, and it leaves the impression, though it's not, sta- not said, and, and maybe it isn't, it isn't very much on the surface, but, it, but it's almost as though Simon thinks Jesus is being somewhat honored to be invited to his house, as though in a sense Jesus wasn't worthy and his actions, or inaction rather, Simon's that is, would say as much. But this woman coming into this uh, house, she comes in. First thing we want to notice is that she's a woman who's full of regret, it seems. She's a forgiven woman. The Lord is forgiven, and He's reassuring her of her forgiveness. But uh, she's coming in showing what doesn't look on the surface to be doesn't look on the surface to be a feeling of gladness and gratitude and thanksgiving. It seems like a woman is in a a, a state of distress, really troubled in her heart. We're told that, uh, verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she came in and went to where he was. She has regrets because she's got a, well, not because, She has regrets. She was a sinner, and so much so that her reputation went as far as even coming to the house of Simon the Pharisee. She was well known. And this woman knew that she was a sinner. Some people suggest one thing or the other about maybe reading between the lines with um, different gospel accounts to try and figure out when this woman might have heard Jesus, what it is she might have heard. I'm not sure that can be proved in any way, and in one sense, it doesn't matter. She's known, she's learned, and she's experienced enough of him that when she hears she's in a house, and even though it's a Pharisee's house, she has to go there. Regrets in what sense? Do you know the feeling of not being able to forgive yourself? Or feeling you can't forgive yourself for something or for things. As a Christian, not meaning that in your Christian life, well, that can, of course, be the case. But as for this woman, this is uh, someone who had the reputation. Simon didn't think it was true of him. Because he, on the outside, he was all clean and and he was um, all religious and everything. But on it's on the inside. He didn't understand what sin really is. He didn't know it was a matter of the heart. He didn't understand the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains the extent that the law goes to in covering sins of thought, motive, and intention, as well as those of word and action. But here she comes, and she's weeping. How do you feel as a Christian yourself? This is something to ask. A time of communion. Is there something about you that, things about you that you wish weren't true? but they are true and they're there. Remember Rahab, and, and, and this is just because thinking of, of someone's reputation. You could think of, as easily think of, of uh, male characters in the Bible, but just thinking just now with, with Rahab and the times in Scripture she's described as Rahab the harlot. And this is years after she's passed away and when she's been pointed out and, and referred to, she's, she's spoken of in these terms. She became an amazing woman and uh, was so influential as an ancestress of our Lord even, according to the flesh. And God used her greatly, and um, she had faith. And and so in, in that sense, the reputation doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Every one of us comes into the kingdom of God with baggage, some maybe more than others. Some baggage is religious, and it can be very hard to shake off I don't know if you know that sometimes, where you think things are wrong because you believed or even you were told or taught they were wrong, but you look at them now and you think, well, I don't even know why people said that to me or what the basis of it is. You might have to look at the Bible for yourself and to come through that, because if we're religious, we'll generally be very critical people, judgmental, pharisaic, all of us. And our religion can become something of a God all of its own that we worship Baggage might not be religious, it might be completely irreligious. Where like this woman, she's living the life she's living. We don't know why or what led her to that, but she ended up in a mess. She ended up tangled and and ensnared by what she was doing. And so she would have had all of this to deal with as well. And maybe one church that stands out in the New Testament for something like that is Corinth. Just thought of it just the 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 other day. Um how sometimes we could, we could even look at a church that doesn't seem and gives all the impression of being off the rails even, Corinth, morally, and in terms of understanding. And you'd look, and the rebukes First Corinthians uh, brings to bear on, on the Corinthian church would maybe leave us thinking, well, whatever this is called, this isn't a church. They're not living as they should. But Paul doesn't... Um, In in that letter, 1 Corinthians, he, 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 well, not that he doesn't, he does, with the opening of the letter, actually commend them, calls them, refers to them as those who are called to be saints, to the church of God that is in Corinth. What an introduction that is. And they had problems, they had baggage, they had difficulties, massive problems, but they would come through that. And uh, these problems sometimes aren't fixed overnight, sometimes they can take time. And even if they take time and situations of unconverted lives that can be maybe up to a point resolved, then we can be left with that feeling of regret. Remember Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, in the Old Testament when he was converted, amazingly converted, he tried to undo the damage he had done in Judah. He went against his father Hezekiah when he became king and did everything possible to bring such, without maybe realizing it, to bring such satanic darkness over Judah, which is what happened, Satan worship, sacrificing children, and so on, all of these horrific things and many more, making Jerusalem flow with the blood of the saints. He was a horrible person. And what was in his life is something that was in the heart of every one of us, at least in potential. But the change that took place And his life was so amazing that he tried afterwards when he came back from um, that time in in Babylon. Not the exile, but a, a personal exile, you might say. And he tried to undo the damage he had done. It's impossible, though. Not saying this woman was doing any of that, but maybe you can, maybe we all can at times wish we could go and apologize and say sorry to everyone. But it's not possible. Sometimes we can. Uh, but we mustn't beat ourselves up if we can't. What matters is that as we sung in Psalm 51, we realize and come to that place where we can say it's against you alone I've done this. Against you alone. It involves people maybe, but it's ultimately against God. We have to leave him to fix what may be left undone as far as we are concerned. What does that have to do with this? I think this woman, though she will and seems to have regrets. That's sorrow. I mean, there's gratitude, there's love, there's worship, there's adoration. She loves the Lord so much. She wants to give him the best of what she's got. But there's the other side of it where it's inseparable from who she's been. So she is a forgiven woman, and she, she loves the Lord, and she wants to come and show and give expression to that. But she's coming to give expression to that because he's forgiven her all of these sins. And uh, the last thing we see in just a minute where the Lord gives her reassurance. That's what we need so often as well, isn't it? Reassurance. Your faith has saved you, he said. Go in peace. She comes to a Pharisee's house. So whatever her regrets are doing, Whatever her feelings about herself, self-loathing even, whatever these things might have been, they're not big enough to keep her from coming to where she knows Jesus is. She's not bothered in a sense of what people are going to say. Can I go to a Pharisee's house? Can I dare venture with all the reputation that I've got? Can I dare to go into this company? None of these things seem to cross her mind. She hears about Jesus being somewhere, and she gets her alabaster flask of ointment, and go straight to where he is. You might say that this woman is unwittingly, without maybe realizing it, but for you and for me looking on, we might be able to realize or see that she's making a profession of faith. She's giving evidence of her love for the Lord, which is a proof of having faith. We can get tied up in knots sometimes about faith and assurance. I don't know if you're like that. And you maybe wish you had this something, this certainty, this assurance. God might give it to you. He might give it to me, but maybe maybe He doesn't at times because we make too much of it. Uh, But ask ourselves, is is the sense of lack of faith or assurance, is it keeping you depending on Him? Is it keeping you coming to Him? He has His way of keeping us. And if we had that assurance, it might be the case. It might be that... um, we'd lose that devotion to him and that dependence upon him. He knows what he's doing. But maybe you can feel yourself like this woman and you love him so much that you want to show him and to tell him and it doesn't matter what anyone thinks. I can remember going to a prayer meeting in Stornoway, walking to the prayer meeting and taking a shortcut through and holding my Bible and um, it was quite something. It's actually someone who tragically lost his life, and in, in, in a fishing boat sank a number of years ago. And I knew him before I was a Christian, and I walked past him going to the prayer meeting, and he looked with shock, and he didn't say a word. He just shook his head. He couldn't believe it. But you know, these things can have their own. They can have their own effect. They can stop people from becoming um, members in a congregation or professing their faith publicly like coming to the Lord's table. What about people? I don't know how much of a problem that is here, but, but uh, there's some parts of the world, and um, it's um, very difficult, because if someone shows the least interest, or even went to a prayer meeting, or it went to a, a service that was on, or any church event, then people start talking. And the proverb says, does it not? The fear of man brings a snare. It can stop, and hinder, and get in the way of so much, but she doesn't have any fear of what people are going to think, she has a consuming and she has an unstoppable desire to get to the presence of Jesus. I hope your heart and my heart can correspond with that, that church is something we don't do or kind of turn up to even go through the steps and stages of what we're doing. These things are so vital and important and, you know, God-given, but it's, it's for him. It should be, shouldn't it? To gather and to come together, to to draw near to Him, and to give our worship, and our praise and our thanksgiving. So maybe you're coming with regrets. Second thing, there's rebuke. This is Simon the Pharisee, and um, see the difference. This woman knows herself. A Christian knows themselves, not, not perfectly, as Jeremiah, he says our hearts are deceitful, desperately wicked, who can know them? We know that about our hearts, but there is that sense where deep down, no one needs to tell us that we're sinners in a sense that, in the sense that we know full well. There's another person, sorry talking about self just now, just crops up Um and you can, hopefully, it's something you, you and I know together in the sense of people we maybe knew, it could even be in your family, I don't know, it could even be living in your own house, where if you become a Christian, people immediately, some might immediately think you're trying to say you're better than them, and that can be, that can be problematic, and I remember that very clearly, somebody saying again, and it was with, with such disbelief, and saying, oh, we remember this, that, and the next thing, and you remember it yourself. It's not that you need anyone to remind you. Because you're not, though people think the church, or maybe the church in the past had the mistake in, in, in generally of creating an impression of of um, just telling people that, that uh, giving the impression that it's all about law. It's all about works. Now that giving the impression, the false impression being taken up through maybe maybe a certain application, maybe the society and the, the proclamation of, of Scripture as though if, if everybody does what they should in a, in a given place, then that makes them automatically Christian. though nominal Christians, I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but people can come away thinking, you know, they're like a headline in the, in, in, in the, it was the Herald years ago about um, the fundamental tenet of Calvinism is, is the Sabbath day. You know, people get this impression, you're just banging on about the commandments. And it's not true. The church exists to proclaim and worship Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Doesn't mean that these laws, of course, do not apply and haven't got their place. It's knowing that and how to apply it and the wisdom that's needed for Christians to not give the impression that we're getting on at people and we're trying to, by trying to, um, to win them over as best we can, that we're not actually giving the impression that we think we're better than them. Now, that can happen but you know yourself enough like paul he said he is the chief of sinners that was that didn't just come off his well come off his lips it didn't just come off his pen easily or lightly the same as for every christian you come today and feeling unworthy we think about unworthiness at communion time feeling unworthy is it's actually it's actually essential not not well you can look at each other and we can look at one another and we should feel less of a Christian, not a lot not, not less saved, but we should look at other Christians and we should see others, Philippians too, to esteem others better than ourselves. It's when we, like Simon the Pharisee, maybe think we're a cut above the rest, spiritual pride or whatever it might be, looking down at anyone, people in different churches, backgrounds, and people who are different and don't kind of conform and all that, we might think we're a bit superior when we're not. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6, in that vision, he saw himself in a new light, and he heard the angels praising the Lord about his holiness. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He came face to face once again with himself, but it seems there he came face to face in a particular way in discovering the sin of his own lips. How can I possibly speak about this God? When having heard angels ascribe praise to him, I realize how unclean my own lips are to communicate any such words. And feeling that unworthiness isn't something that should hold us back. Being unworthy and feeling unworthy, you know they're not the same. In the, in, the, in the Christian sense, in the, in the first Corinthian sense of coming to the Lord's table, eating and drinking unworthily, feeling unworthy to come, we should all feel that. That's why we love and, and wish to focus our attention on him. Because he is worthy. Not the song of heaven. One of the songs in Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That is our song. That is our anthem. That is, our, or should be, our motivation in coming. In coming with a sense of inadequacy, and with a, a sense, a real sense of unworthiness, like the centurion. Lord, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not worthy of all the mercy, the kindness you've shown. Remember Jacob, when he had that encounter with God and had the vision, the dream of the, the stairway to heaven, and it's afterwards, and he's speaking to God, and he's saying, I'm not worthy. An interesting one, that. Where was he spiritually at that point? But certainly the beginnings, if not more, of that discovery of self, of being unworthy to receive the blessings that God is giving. So don't be discouraged. Don't be put off and don't stay away because of regrets or how you feel or how you maybe feel others might feel about you. But if we feel we're better than anyone, let's listen to this rebuke. Because Simon the Pharisee is watching what this woman's doing. She comes in, And no sooner is she in the house, she's weeping behind Jesus' feet. The way they're reclining at the table, and she's weeping profusely. She's wetting his feet with her tears. And she's wiping his tears with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. And the Pharisee Simon is appalled at this. He doesn't understand sin. He doesn't understand grace. We were told in verse 39 that when when the Pharisee saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet... He'd have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. But Jesus knows what he's thinking and rebukes him. Simon, I've got something to say to you. So there's two debtors, a massive and a, or a big and a small debt. And uh, the creditor cancels both. Who's going to love the creditor more? And Simon said, well, obviously, the one who's forgiven more will love the creditor more because that's natural and the Lord is saying exactly. And he sees this woman. The poor woman's there and no one's speaking to her. But she's hearing this. What an amazing thing to hear. The Lord knows Simon's heart. The Lord knows this woman's heart. And he's rebuking Simon. And through his rebuke of Simon, he's reassuring this woman as well. So in one sense, he's not speaking to her, but in another sense, he is. Not speaking directly, but indirectly. Do you see this woman I entered your house, verse 44 tells us, you didn't give me water, Uh, you didn't give me a kiss of greeting, you didn't anoint my head. But this woman, she's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair, she hasn't ceased to kiss my feet, and she's anointed my feet with ointment. Something that was valuable, something that would have taken a long time to kind of save in order to buy or keep, maybe a year. To think of that, every penny earned for a year to, to invest in this special precious ointment, and she's going to take what is so valuable and precious and important, and she's going to pour it out, noticing it's on his feet. He can't be any lower than the feet of Jesus. When John saw him in the revelation and saw him in his glory, we're told he fell. When I saw him, he said, chapter one, I fell at his feet as dead. Down he went. And there she is, that sense and feeling of unworthiness and that for herself, but that awareness that he deserves everything. And so she's weeping. There's sorrow, there's regret, but there's also that love deep down where she's giving to him everything she's got, and she doesn't care what people think. She has to and wants to tell him this. And there he rebukes, the Lord rebukes Simon, and in in doing that, encourages, verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. You may, if it helps, think of the word for, that means basically the same thing, the word because. She loved much because her sins which are many are forgiven. Just like the debtor with a large debt was forgiven, that debtor's going to love the creditor more. It's an obvious illustration, and Simon gets the point of it. But I don't think I don't think he gets it for himself. Because you think of the Lord's rebuke to him, the one who's forgiven little. Where there's no way doesn't mean that 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 um, you know forgiveness of, of many or fewer sins. Um, we think of it in terms of categories, of you know, we can think of it in terms of something numerical and an accumulation of sins and all of that. Rather, I think it's more the awareness. Someone who doesn't feel they've been forgiven much or someone who doesn't know they've been forgiven anything won't have any love. They'll be cold and and hard-hearted and religious and pharisaic like Simon. Effectively, saying, Simon, you don't understand grace, do you? You haven't experienced forgiveness. This woman has, though. And she is a sinner. She committed many sins. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And this is why she's here, Simon. This is what you're witnessing. This is a woman who loves so much that she's prepared to give everything she's got. She doesn't care what people think about her. She doesn't care of the fact that you've got the attitude that you have about her. She's only concerned in showing her love for the Lord. Isn't that amazing to see the grace of God in, in anyone's life? Do you feel it amazing yourself, you know, coming today and just being in church and just wanting to worship God and meet the Lord and know more about, does it not sometimes amaze you to think, this is actually true of me? Have you got over the fact that you're a Christian? Should never happen, should it? There's something that should really, you know, like in, in Psalm 126, the, the Psalm of the 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 Jews coming back, when God turned back the captivity of Zion, he said, we were like men that dreamed. Just couldn't believe it. Amazed in awe. After the resurrection, one of the the, the, uh, uh, accounts tells us that some of the people who were told to uh, to go and and share the news of the resurrection, they couldn't believe for joy. That's amazing. They were so happy about what had happened, they couldn't kind of, fully come to terms with whether it had happened or not? That's amazing. It's possible, it's well, isn't it? To be in God's house, to be seeking the Lord, and to be able to say, I can't believe I'm actually here. Amazing grace, is it not? John Newton, I think it was um, one of these things, was at a study, and he had a, 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 a a text above all one of the walls. I can't remember where it exactly was it, a vestry, was it a study? It's been a long time ago. I just remembered it just now. But he had, I think, the text from with the Lord speaking to Israel Remember that you were a bondman in Egypt. Remember who you were. Remember where you came from. But it doesn't stop there. It says, Remember what the Lord has done for you. And the communion's a time of remembrance for us, isn't it? Because we forget so quickly. So easily, at a time of remembrance of him. We can't think of him apart from what he's done, but he isn't saying, Do this in remembrance of what I've done. The, the bread and the wine speak of what he's done. His broken body, his poured out blood, his shed blood. But he says, Remember me. It's only Christians who can do that. Anyone can commemorate. Like at a memorial, remember the cross and without having any personal experience of forgiveness or grace. But only God's people can remember Jesus Himself, and that's what we want. It's not in the sense maybe even of Well Yeah, even if there are feelings of regrets, even if even if you feel in your life and me and with you like David Psalm 50, feeling rebuked. Maybe inside or maybe in different ways. We are aware of things that are true. We wish they weren't. But don't let any of these, all things being equal. This isn't, you know, living in, in kind of sin and persisting. I'm not meaning that at all. But that awareness of ourselves, of our own hearts, of our feelings, our shortcomings. They should never keep us back. But um, they should actually encourage us like this woman to come. Because she got the reassurance she was looking for. She left this house a very happy woman. Do you think? Could anyone receive these words from Jesus, answering directly to her need? For the Lord to say in your hearing, how amazing to hear the Lord saying to someone about you, this woman, this man loves me a lot. So much because they've been forgiven so much. And where you might be blinded by, relatively obscured even by, by the tears and the sorrow and He's saying deep down, all of that, what you're feeling, is because I've worked in your life. It's not because, like Simon wants to continue thinking about you and others. I mean, you, this is you, and this is you're tarnished with this. It's going to stay with you your whole life. It's not about any of that, and all of these things will contribute. You know, think about your our failings and before, if we were living life and, and so on before Christian like not converted, young. All of these things, even the things that we've done, they've all been and will all be used in God's plan and purpose for our lives. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarshish, you remember him, he was, maybe was, his heritage, he was Jewish. He was a Roman citizen, made use of that in Acts. But by education, he was a Greek. He was a Greek. He can see how he could debate and he could engage with people. And he was he was so full, as you know, of, of zeal and passion. He was fanatical about Judaism and Phariseeism. Going from house to house and grabbing men and women. He didn't care. Throwing them in prison. He wanted the church dead. He wanted the church to be stamped out of existence. It's hard to think of someone being like that. And then uh, um, the next sentence, the next breath there in Galatians. People who hadn't known him or seen him face to face had only heard that he is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Not amazing. But notice then how the Lord used his personality, the Lord used his past, his education, his heritage. It was all like the raw material, and God ignited it and sent him out. Don't let what you've been or done, you might even wonder, it sometimes crosses people's minds of thinking, we'll finish in just a second. Um, can sometimes wonder about why why you were maybe a certain person or did certain things, where well, you don't maybe see an opening in your Christian life to share out of that kind of experience. But that'll come. That'll come. Second Corinthians one, although it's not exactly the same, it's, I think the principle is is involved that we will be able when we suffer and experience God's comfort, we'll be able to share comfort to others who are suffering. To share the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. So, why suffer and why go through things? Well, part of it would be to be a blessing in other people's lives. There's one occasion, Charles Spurgeon, he sunk mentally, really struggling. He went away to France. It's in his book, The Soul Winner. I think the chapter is The Cost of Being a Soul Winner. And he was talking about uh, his time when he, I mean, he, he sunk and he came back. And uh, he preached in Psalm 22, 1, the words our Lord is, uh, says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what Spurgeon said he did, he felt he could only speak, part anyway, out of the experience he'd had. And someone happened to be in church listening to him on that occasion who was intent on doing them serious themselves serious harm and thinking, well, what's, 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 what loss is there to just go to church one last time? And he went in, and this man came and spoke to Spurgeon afterwards. Spurgeon, I think the man looked like he was, he was dead on his feet. And the man said to Spurgeon that he was on his way to do himself serious harm. And he heard someone, he said, by Spurgeon, he said, I heard someone, you describe my situation perfectly. And it stopped him from going to do what he was going to do. The point of it there, Spurgeon speaking about the cost of soul winning. Why did Spurgeon have to go through that? Why do you, things that might happen, why does this have to happen? We know it has to. The Lord has ordained it and it can be complicated, of course, but trying to figure it all out. But maybe it's afterwards it'll make sense. We might not ever know, but... Even this woman here, we're hopefully benefiting today, thinking about the Lord's dealings in her life and her attitudes, and and how she came and was um, reassured of her forgiveness. Will the Lord help us to find that by coming to Him? You know, it's not maybe asking for. F- Assurance, maybe not so much asking for increased faith. Not that these things are wrong or, or out of place in any sh- shape or form, but to be able to come and say, Lord, I need to meet with you. All these other things will work out. To meet with him, where two or three gather in my name, He said, I am there in the midst. He's pictured in Revelation 2 and 3 as walking among the candlesticks, the church, the seven golden lampstands, candlesticks. He's present and it's coming and praying and asking, Lord, speak to me. Change my life. Reassure me. And may the Lord give that to you and give it to me. We'll, we'll pray just now. Let's pray. Lord, our God, as we come just now to speak to you again, we thank you for how you spoke to Simon, how you spoke to this woman, and for the amazing work you did in her life. We thank you, Lord, for how faith And love and hope can be so profoundly life-changing and influential in areas and situations where we might cower and want to hide from people, maybe not profess faith or not fully come on your side publicly. But give deliverance and grant to all of us, Lord, that sense of reassurance and to know the forgiveness of our sins. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May we know and may we rejoice in that fact. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's conclude uh, singing some verses from Psalm 22. Sing Psalms 22.